Section 30 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Canaan. Youth 2, Part 4. Christophe thought he should see her again in the evening but he was watched by the Fogels, and followed everywhere by his mother. As usual, he was behindhand with his preparations for his journey, and could not find time to leave the house for a moment. Next day he left very early. As he passed Sabine's door, he longed to go in, to tap at the window. It hurt him to leave her without saying good-bye, for he had been interrupted by Rosa before he had had time to do so but he thought she must be asleep and would be cross with him if he woke her up. And then, what could he say to her? It was too late now to abandon his journey. And what if she were to ask him to do so? He did not admit to himself that he was not averse to exercising his power over her, if need be, causing her a little pain. He did not take seriously the grief that his departure brought Sabine and he thought that his short absence would increase the tenderness which, perhaps, she had for him. He ran to the station. In spite of everything, he was a little remorseful. But as soon as the train had started, it was all forgotten. There was youth in his heart. Gaily he saluted the old town with its roofs and towers rosy under the sun, and, with the carelessness of those who are departing, he said good-bye to those whom he was leaving, and thought no more of them. The whole time that he was at Dusseldorf and Cologne, Sabine never once recurred to his mind. Taken up from morning till night with rehearsals and concerts, dinners and talk, busied with a thousand and one new things, and the pride and satisfaction of his success, he had no time for recollection. Once only, on the fifth night after he left home, he woke suddenly after a dream, and knew that he had been thinking of her in his sleep, and that the thought of her had wakened him up. But he could not remember how he had been thinking of her. He was unhappy and feverish. It was not surprising. He had been playing at a concert that evening, and when he left the hall he had been dragged off to a supper at which he had drunk several glasses of champagne. He could not sleep and got up. He was obsessed by a musical idea— he pretended that it was that which had broken in upon his sleep, and he wrote it down. As he read through it, he was astonished to see how sad it was. There was no sadness in him when he wrote, at least so he thought, but he remembered that on other occasions when he had been sad, he had only been able to write joyous music, so gay that it offended his mood. He gave no more thought to it, he was used to the surprises of his mind-world without ever being able to understand them. He went to sleep at once, and knew no more until the next morning. He extended his stay by three or four days. It pleased him to prolong it, knowing he could return whenever he liked. He was in no hurry to go home. It was only when he was on the way, in the train, that the thought of Sabina came back to him. He had not written to her. He was even careless enough never to have taken the trouble to ask at the post-office for any letters that might have been written to him. 
He took a secret delight in his silence. He knew that at home he was expected, that he was loved. Loved? She had never told him so. He had never told her so. No doubt they knew it and had no need to tell it. And yet there was nothing so precious as the certainty of such an avowal. Why had they waited so long to make it? When they had been on the point of speaking, always something, some mischance, shyness, embarrassment, had hindered them. Why? Why? How much time they had lost. He longed to hear the dear words from the lips of the beloved. He longed to say them to her. He said them aloud in the empty carriage. As he neared the town, he was torn with impatience, a sort of agony. Faster! Faster! Oh! To think! that in an hour he would see her again. It was half-past six in the morning when he reached home. Nobody was up yet. Sabina's windows were closed. He went into the yard on tiptoe, so that she should not hear him. He chuckled at the thought of taking her by surprise. He went up to his room. His mother was asleep. He washed and brushed his hair without making any noise. He was hungry, but he was afraid of waking Louisa by rummaging in the pantry. He heard footsteps in the yard. He opened his window softly and saw Rosa, first up as usual, beginning to sweep. He called her gently. She started in glad surprise when she saw him. Then she looked solemn. He thought she was still offended with him. But for the moment he was in a very good temper. He went down to her. "'Rosa, Rosa,' he said gaily, "'give me something to eat, or I shall eat you.' I am dying of hunger. Rosa smiled and took him to the kitchen on the ground floor. She poured him out a bowl of milk and then could not refrain from plying him with a string of questions about his travels and his concerts. But although he was quite ready to answer them, in the happiness of his return he was almost glad to hear Rosa's chatter once more. Rosa stopped suddenly in the middle of her cross-examination. Her face fell, her eyes turned away and she became sorrowful. Then her chatter broke out again, but soon it seemed that she thought it out of place, and once more she stopped short. And he noticed it then, and said, "'What is the matter, Rosa? Are you cross with me?' She shook her head violently in denial, and turning towards him with her usual suddenness, took his arm with both hands. "'Oh, Christophe!' she said. He was alarmed. He let his piece of bread fall from his hands. "'What? What is the matter?' he stammered. She said again, "'Oh, Christophe, such an awful thing has happened!' He thrust away from the table. He stuttered, uh, "'Here?' She pointed to the house on the other side of the yard. He cried, "'Sabine!' She wept. "'She is dead!' Christophe saw nothing. He got up. He almost fell. He clung to the table, upset the things on it. He wished to cry out. He suffered fearful agony. He turned sick. Rosa hastened to his side. She was frightened. She held his head and wept. As soon as he could speak, he said, "'It is not true!' He knew that it was true, but he wanted to deny it. He wanted to pretend that it could not be. When he saw Rosa's face wet with tears, he could doubt no more, and he sobbed aloud. Rosa raised her head. "'Christophe!' she said. 
He hid his face in his hands. She leaned towards him. Christophe, Mama is coming. Christophe got up. No, no, he said. She must not see me. She took his hand and led him, stumbling and blinded by his tears, to a little woodshed which opened on to the yard. She closed the door. They were in darkness. He sat on a block of wood used for chopping sticks. She sat on the faggots. Sounds from without were deadened and distant. There he could weep without fear of being heard. He let himself go and sobbed furiously. Rosa had never seen him weep. She had even thought that he could not weep. She knew only her own girlish tears, and such despair in a man filled her with terror and pity. She was filled with a passionate love for Christophe. It was an absolutely unselfish love, an immense need of sacrifice, a maternal self-denial, a hunger to suffer for him, to take his sorrow upon herself. She put her arm round his shoulders. "'Dear Christophe,' she said, do not cry. Christophe turned from her. I wish to die. Rosa clasped her hands. Don't say that, Christophe. I wish to die. I cannot, cannot live now. What is the good of living? Christophe, dear Christophe, you are not alone. You are loved. What is that to me? I love nothing now. It is nothing to me whether everything else live or die. I loved nothing. I loved only her. I loved only her. He sobbed louder than ever, with his face buried in his hands. Rosa could find nothing to say. The egoism of Christophe's passion stabbed her to the heart. Now, when she thought herself most near to him, she felt more isolated and more miserable than ever. Grief, instead of bringing them together, thrust them only the more widely apart. She wept bitterly. After some time, Christophe stopped weeping and asked, How? How? Rosa understood. She fell ill of influenza on the evening you left, and she was taken suddenly. He groaned. Dear God, why did you not write to me? She said. I did write. I did not know your address. You did not give us any. I went and asked at the theatre. Nobody knew it. He knew how timid she was, and how much it must have cost her. He asked, Did she... did she tell you to do that? She shook her head. No, but I thought... He thanked her with a look. Rosa's heart melted. My poor, poor Christophe, she said. She flung her arms round his neck and wept. Christophe felt the worth of such pure tenderness... He had so much need of consolation. He kissed her. How kind you are, he said. You loved her too? She broke away from him. She threw him a passionate look, did not reply, and began to weep again. That look was a revelation to him. It meant, It was not she whom I loved. Christophe saw at last what he had not known, what for months he had not wished to see. He saw that she loved him. Shh! she said. They are calling me. They heard Amalia's voice. Rosa asked, Do you want to go back to your room? He said, No, I could not yet. I could not bear to talk to my mother. Later on, she said, Stay here. I will come back soon. 
He stayed in the dark woodshed, to which only a thread of light penetrated through a small air hole filled with cobwebs. From the street there came up the cry of a hawker. Against the wall a horse in a stable next door was snorting and kicking. The revelation that had just come to Christophe gave him no pleasure, but it held his attention for a moment. It made plain many things that he had not understood. A multitude of little things that he had disregarded occurred to him and were explained. He was surprised to find himself thinking of it. He was ashamed to be turned aside even for a moment from his misery. But that misery was so frightful, so irrepressible, that the mistrust of self-preservation, stronger than his will, than his courage, than his love, forced him to turn away from it, seized on this new idea, as the suicide drowning seizes in spite of himself on the first object which can help him, not to save himself, but to keep himself for a moment longer above the water. And it was because he was suffering that he was able to feel what another was suffering, suffering through him. He understood the tears that he had brought to her eyes. He was filled with pity for Rosa. He thought how cruel he had been to her, how cruel he must still be, for he did not love her. What good was it for her to love him? Poor girl! In vain did he tell himself that she was good. She had just proved it. What was her goodness to him? What was her life to him? He thought, Why is it not she who is dead, and the other who is alive? He thought, She is alive. She loves me. She can tell me that today, tomorrow, all my life. And the other, the woman I love, she is dead and never told me that she loved me. I never have told her that I loved her. I shall never hear her say it. She will never know it. And suddenly he remembered that last evening. He remembered that they were just going to talk when Rosa came and prevented it. And he hated Rosa. The door of the woodshed was opened. Rosa called Christophe softly and groped towards him. She took his hand. He felt an aversion in her near presence. In vain did he reproach himself for it. It was stronger than himself. Rosa was silent. Her great pity had taught her silence. Christophe was grateful to her for not breaking in upon his grief with useless words. And yet he wished to know. She was the only creature who could talk to him of her. He asked in a whisper, When did she? He dared not say die. She replied, Last Saturday week. Dimly he remembered, he said, At night? Rosa looked at him in astonishment and said, Yes, at night, between two and three. The sorrowful melody came back to him. He asked, trembling, Did she suffer much? No, no. God be thanked, dear Christophe. She hardly suffered at all. She was so weak. She did not struggle against it. Suddenly they saw that she was lost. And she, did she know it? I don't know, I think. Did she say anything? No, nothing. She was sorry for herself like a child. You were there? Yes, for the first two days I was there alone, before her brother came. He pressed her hand in gratitude. Thank you. She felt the blood rush to her heart. 
After a silence, he said, he murmured the question which was choking him, Did she say anything? For me? Rosa shook her head sadly. She would have given much to be able to let him have the answer he expected. She was almost sorry that she could not lie about it. She tried to console him. She was not conscious. But she did speak. One could not make out what she said. It was in a very low voice. Where is the child? Her brother took her away with him to the country. And she? She is there, too. She was taken away last Monday week. They began to weep again. Frau Vogel's voice called Rosa once more. Christophe, left alone again, lived through those days of death. A week, already a week ago. Oh, God, what had become of her? How it had rained that week! And all that time he was laughing, he was happy. In his pocket he felt a little parcel wrapped up in soft paper. They were silver buckles that he had brought her for her shoes. He remembered the evening when he had placed his hand on the little stockinged foot. Her little feet, where were they now? How cold they must be! He thought the memory of that warm contact was the only one that he had of the beloved creature. He had never dared to touch her, to take her in his arms, to hold her to his breast. She was gone forever, and he had never known her. He knew nothing of her, neither soul nor body. He had no memory of her body, of her life, of her love. Her love? What proof had he of that? He had not even a letter, a token, nothing. Where could he seek to hold her, in himself or outside himself? Oh, nothing. There was nothing left him but the love he had for her. Nothing left him but himself. And in spite of all, his desperate desire to snatch her from destruction, his need of denying death, made him cling to the last piece of wreckage in an act of blind faith. Ne son già morto, e ben cialbergo cangi, resto in te vivo, cior mi vede e piangi, se l'altro amante si trasforma. I am not dead. I have changed my dwelling. I live still in thee, who art faithful to me. The soul of the beloved is merged in the soul of the lover. He had never read these sublime words, but they were in him. Each one of us, in turn, climbs the calvary of the age. Each one of us finds anew the agony. Each one of us finds anew the desperate hope and folly of the ages. Each one of us follows in the footsteps of those who were, of those before us who struggled with death, denied death, and are dead. End of section 30